tonight. Uh, we'll share a little bit and then we'll have this uh, lovely little dedication of little baby Perez. Uh, Luke chapter 24. I just want to read a scripture there and also John chapter 20. Just uh, one more scripture there as well. Luke chapter 24. Well, let me read from verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and thought that they had seen a spirit. This was after Christ's resurrection. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then in John chapter 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Somebody said that Jesus never won a convert by hiding his scars. Scars are a visible sign of battle and war, of conflict and of pain. Many an old soldier uh, has more than medals on his chest. He bears in his body the wounds and the scars of the battles that he fought and won. The Apostle Paul, after all that he had gone through as a follower of Christ and all the persecution and all of the hurt, he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The wounds of Jesus was his brand. It was his evidence of victory. It was his proof that he had conquered through the cross. It was a visible sign of his physical resurrection. And Thomas, doubting Thomas as we called him, you remember in John chapter 20 where we were a moment ago, uh, this was something that he himself actually wanted to see. In John 20 verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That was the evidence. That was what he wanted to see. Nothing else would convince him unless and until he saw the actual scars. Until he saw those nail-scarred hands, he would not be convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's talking about us tonight. Revelation 1 and 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Even so, 
Amen. Revelation 5 and 6, speaking about Jesus. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. I want to talk to you tonight about those nail-scarred hands. Hands are often an indicator of character, of habit, of nature, of ability. We say things like an artist has creative hands or a marksman has steady hands. A murderer has bloody hands or we might say a surgeon has got skillful hands. A gardener has got green fingers. So hands often are indicative of something about the person. What kind of hands were Jesus' hands? How can we describe them? That's what I want to share with you just for a few moments tonight. First of all, they were human hands. We read there in Luke chapter 24 that after Jesus' resurrection, when they thought they had seen a ghost, remember most of these were fishermen, and fishermen were highly superstitious. When they're out in the sea and the boats and the storms, in fact, when Jesus walked on the water, they thought there was a ghost that was coming towards them. So Jesus was at pains to put that right, to say, look, I'm not a ghost. Look at my hands. Look at me. And in fact, if you are to read on there a little bit, you'd see that he got them to make some food and he ate it in front of them to show them that he wasn't a ghost that he was literal and real and physical and material and human and had flesh and bone. The fact that Jesus retained his physical human body after the resurrection is of great significance to us. You see, while he was on earth, he fully identified with us. He took on flesh and blood. Emmanuel, God with us, the Word speaking of Christ, was made flesh and came and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory and so forth. And so he did that to identify with us. Then he went to Calvary. He died on the cross and he was buried. He rose again the third day. And for the next 40 days, he showed himself with many infallible proofs alive to many people. And then he ascended on high to sit at the Father's right hand in the heavens. But whenever he did that, when he got back to heaven and sat at the Father's right hand, he did not divest himself of that human body. The body he took on upon himself to come to this earth, he kept that because he forever wants to identify with us. So that whenever we eventually do see him, we'll see him in human form. Yes, glorified. Yes, wonderfully glorified. But nevertheless, the prince will be in his hands. He has that human body to fully identify with us. So when the Bible says we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, we're not talking about some specter, some invisible nebulous substance. We're talking about a man, a real man, a human being, but God nonetheless, the God-man. And so he will continue with us forever that way. See, that's what makes him the perfect mediator between man and God. 
In fact, that's what makes him the only mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. Paul said to Timothy, there's only one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. Peter says, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so, his hands were human hands. His hands were holy hands. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Nobody's hands were cleaner. Nobody's heart was purer than the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15, He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, Peter says, Who did no sin. 1 John 3.5, John says, In him is no sin. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Pilate's wife said, Have nothing to do with that just man. I have suffered many things in a dream today because of this just man. Even the thief on the cross, after initially hurling abuse at him, but in those hours watching Christ on that cross, he said to his other friend on the other side, in effect, he says, stop it. We can't do this. We justly deserve what we got, but this man has done nothing amiss. These were holy hands. The Roman centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God. Even the very testimony of nature itself, the sun refused to shine. The rocks were split the graves were opened. The earth shook. The Bible says he was holy, harmless, and separate from sinners. Imagine him through 33 years on this earth, and never once did he ever sin. Had he sinned, he never could have been the Savior. Never once did he sin. Never once did he make a mistake. He had holy hands. Then the Bible talks about wounded hands. Zechariah 13 and 6. And one shall say to him, What are these wounds in your hands? Then he will answer, Those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That was a prophetic scripture about Christ. If ever anything came true, it was that scripture. What are these wounds in your hands? I was wounded in the house of my friends. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They put him on a cross. They crucified him. There's a story about a man called William Dixon who lived in England many, many, many years ago. 
He was a widower and he had lost his son and he was totally alone. And one day he saw his neighbor's house was on fire and he made a dash for it and he climbed up an iron pipe to get to the second floor to rescue this grandmother's orphan son. The grandmother was rescued and he rescued the orphan son. Brought him back down the pipe and rescued him. Shortly thereafter, the grandmother died. And here was an orphan with no mother or father. It was the talk of the town. The council got together to decide who could have this child. One man came forward who always wanted to have a child of his own who never had one. And he put forth his case, and it was a good case. And then it came the turn of William Dixon. And he didn't say a word. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew what he had done. He didn't say anything. He didn't have to. He just held up his hands, and they were terribly scarred, terribly burnt because of that iron pipe. And as he held up his hands, he had to say nothing more. Everybody realized he was the one who was to get that child. He was the one who earned the right to get that child. And Christ, with his nail-scarred hands, is the one who has won the right to adopt you into his family tonight. Nobody else has got that right to spiritually adopt you into his family. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Are you beginning to get an image of these hands, these nail-scarred hands, how important they are? Nobody else can forgive our sins except the man with the nail-scarred hands. No pastor, no priest, no minister. We can point you to him. But he's the only one who can forgive your sins. And then there's compassionate hands. In Mark chapter 1, there's that lovely story of Jesus and the leper. Verse 40, now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, note it, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Notice what he did. He stretched out his hands and he touched him. He identified not just with this man's sickness, but with the stigma that went with that leprosy. The consequences of leprosy was great. It's great today, but it was even more so in those days. 
He was an unclean man. Listen, for Jesus to touch that man, a rabbi would not touch that man. The only one could touch him would be the priest. Nobody else dare near go near this man. Jesus could have simply spoke the word and cleansed him, but he didn't. He identified, he touched him. If that man needed anything, it was a touch. Nobody had touched him for years. Not even a family member would touch him. But these were compassionate hands. He identified with the social and the emotional and the physical consequences of this man's sickness. He's not afraid to draw alongside us in our worst moments, in our weakest moments, in our most terrible moments. Even when we mess up in life in the greatest way, he still will come along and he'll touch us. Remember in Luke chapter 7 how there was a widow and her only son had died and they were carrying him and the coffin on their shoulders to the grave. And it just so happened that it was in the same road that Jesus was coming. Remember what Jesus did. He stopped the procession. And he went over and he touched the coffin. And the young man arose up and began to speak. That would have been some sight to see, wouldn't it? But do you realize that by touching that, that he was making himself ceremonially unclean? That for a week he would not be able to go into the temple. That he would have to bathe on the third day and on the seventh day. That touch made him ceremonially unclean. To touch a dead body, according to Numbers chapter 19, it was a big thing in those days. But Jesus didn't care. He wanted to identify. He could have spoke the word the way he did with Lazarus, but he touched it to identify. That was the compassion of Christ. Remember the little woman who came in the crowd that was crowding around Jesus? And how that she sneaked up on him as it were and she reached out and touched the hem of his garment and immediately she was cleansed of that issue of blood that she had for years. Again, that would make him unclean ceremonially. But did he scold her? Did he barge her as we would say in Northern Ireland? Not at all. No wonder she was frightened because she had touched a rabbi. She knew she was in trouble. That's what she thought. But Jesus turned around and what compassion he had on her. What tenderness. How he treated her was just beautiful. See, these are the compassionate hands of Christ tonight. Let me read to you just a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? who has measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Now the scriptures very clearly tells us that Christ, Jesus, created everything. And without him was nothing made that was made. Who measured heaven with a span. Let me just take a moment.
you regulars almost know what I'm going to say next, all right? That's a fancy tray, isn't it? Just say that that tray, you've got to use your imagination here, just say that tray represented our solar system. All of it. So you've really got to stretch your imagination. And just say that dot there, if it was in dead center of that tray, that would be our sun. Then it would be Mercury, and then it would be Venus, and then there would be Earth, and then it would be Mars, and so forth. Eight different planets. And even though that doesn't seem much, but it is vast. In 1977, NASA sent up two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And the idea was to go out to the big gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter and check them out and send back reports and pictures and all kinds of things. And they did that successfully. And because they were very successful and because they were still motoring and healthy, they said, well, we'll send them farther out. We'll send them to Neptune and to, uh, to Uranus and see how that goes. And they went there and they did brilliantly. And they were still going. So they thought, well... We've done more than what we thought we could do, so we'll just, while they're going, we'll keep them at it. Keep her lit, as we say. And so they kept them lit. And they're still going today. 36 years later, they're still going. And it's only now that Voyager 1, traveling at 38,000 miles an hour, and has gone 11 billion miles, it's only now, after 36 years, that they've got to the edge of our solar system. So it is absolutely vast, huge, almost beyond our comprehension. And it says that, metaphorically speaking, that he measures out the heavens with a span. Now take our tray again. Just one more illustration. Take our tray. This is our vast solar system. But in comparison to our galaxy, which our solar system's in, it is minuscule. <laughs> it is so tiny. I'm not talking about the earth, I'm talking about the whole solar system. The sun and the earth and all the planets. All those billions of miles, it's just so tiny. If I was to take that tray that represents our solar system and say, well, how could that compare to our galaxy? What, well, how could we compare it? Would this room, for instance, that I'm holding this tray, would this room represent the galaxy? And this represents the solar system in the galaxy, would it? Would that be a fair comparison? No. Absolutely not. If I took it out to the road in Moira and just plunked it down in the street in Moira and say, well, think of all of Moira. Say that. Does that represent the whole galaxy, all of Moira? And that tray in the middle of Main Street, that's our... Oh, I can hardly get down there. <laughs> Better not do that again, clever. I'll get you to reach it to me. No, that'd be no good either. What about the whole of Northern Ireland? Would that be a good comparison? No. 
What about all of Ireland? What if I went down, say, to the middle of Ireland, through that tray down and say, that's our solar system. All of Ireland's our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Would that be a good comparison? doesn't even come close. I would have to take that tray. And it'll stay there. And I have to go to America. And I have to throw that tray somewhere in America. That tiny little tray. And America would represent the Milky Way galaxy. And that little tray would represent our solar system. And the Bible says he measures out the heavens with a span. And our galaxy is only one of billions of galaxies. Can't count them. Billions. Just with a span. Is God big enough for you? Is he big enough? Is he big enough for your problem? Is he big enough to meet your need? Is he big enough to forgive your sins? He's big enough, isn't he? He's more than enough. His grace is sufficient. Very quickly. Remember the story of the little boy they had been out there listening to Jesus preaching for a few days and everybody was hungry. Jesus said to his disciples, feed them. <laughs> 5,000 men besides women and children. Feed them, he says. But Lord, 200 penny worth would not be enough to feed such a vast crowd. As if the Lord didn't know that. Send them away. Send them away to their homes. He says, no, no, he says, you feed them. The fellow went out and he found a little boy with his lunch. Five little loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? But they were enough for the God with big hands, weren't they? Long story short, he took the bread in those hands and he broke it. And he said, now distribute. <laughs> and 5,000 men besides women and children were fed. And there was 12 baskets left over. Multiplying hands. Your life can be greatly multiplied in the hands of Jesus. If you give your life to Jesus, I will guarantee you, your life will be multiplied. God will do more with your life than you can ever even begin to imagine. You can affect, you can impact more people than you can ever imagine if you give your life into his hands. He can multiply your life. Have you done that? Have you given your life into his hands? You'll never ever regret it. And he'll do with your life more than you'll ever do with it. I can promise you that too. He'll bless you. He'll change you. Then finally, and then we'll do this little dedication. His hands are safe hands. We talk today in terms of somebody's a good manager, the good whatever we say, they're a safe pair of hands. You can trust them. <laughs> they're not going to mess up. Well, that's what Christ is like. He's a safe pair of hands. John 10, 28, he says, Neither shall any man pluck you out of my hands. Hmm. 
Does that make you feel safe tonight? You know, there's lots of talk over this past few days about Sir Alec Ferguson retiring as Manchester United manager after, what was it, 26 years or so. And of course now he's in now for sainthood. You know, they all hated his guts now, but now he's always the most wonderful man that has ever lived. But even his enemy said, he was a brilliant manager. He was a brilliant manager. And let me tell you, Christ is a brilliant manager. He knows how to manage your life better than anybody else and better than you know how to manage it. And he knows how to keep you safe. Paul said, Philippians 1 and 6, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he's the Alpha, he's the Omega, isn't he? He's the first and the last, he's the beginning and the end. And what he has started in your life, you can trust him to complete it. 2 Timothy 1 and 12, For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded, Paul said, that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What have you committed unto him? Whatever you have committed unto him, you can be sure he'll keep it unto that day. Have you committed your life unto him? He'll keep it. You can trust him. He'll manage it for you. He'll look after you. And one day he'll take you home to be with him forever and forever. Let me close with this. We're talking about the nail-scarred hands. Some of you know this. This was beautifully written. Myra Brooks Welsh wrote this. The touch of the master's hand. Anybody know the touch of the master's hand? A few of you. Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to spend much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding for this, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A pound, one pound, then two, only two. Two pounds are bidding, say three. Three pounds once, three pounds twice, going for three, but lo. From the back of the crowd, a grey-haired man came forward and he picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody passing sweet, the kind that haunts and clings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was soft and low said, Now what is bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand pounds? Who'll make it two? Two? Two thousand? Say three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, three thousand gone, said he. The people cheered, but some exclaimed, We do not quite understand what changed its worth. And the answer came, "'Twas the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with a soul out of tune, and battered and scarred by sin, is auctioned cheap by the thoughtless crowd, just like the old violin. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the chains that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Hmm. Isn't that a brilliant poem? Let me encourage you tonight to put your life 
into the master's hands, into the nail-scarred hands. It would be the greatest decision you ever made in all of your life. And your life would change forever. <laughs> I promise you that. Isn't he wonderful tonight? Think of the price he paid to get those scars so that you and I tonight might come to know him and trust him, give our lives to him. Let's pray. Lord, tonight you know the heart of every man, woman, boy and girl in this building. You know where we come from. You know where we're going. You know where we are right now. And my prayer is that this night someone in this place will put their life into your hands. Will surrender themselves and say yes to Christ. So while we're in this attitude of prayer, would you like to do that? Would you like to be that one who would say, I don't understand everything, but I do know that Christ died for me. I do know that he gave his life for me. And I want to give my life to him. You can do that tonight. And your whole life will change. Because the man with the nail-scarred hands will take your hand and he'll begin to lead you and guide you for the rest of your life. So in these moments before we do this little dedication... If that's you tonight, anywhere in this building, and you want to come to Christ tonight, all I want you to do is I don't want you to stand. I just want you to put up your hand and put it down again. And that will indicate to me and say, David, I want you to pray for me. And if you want to do that, why don't you do it right now?